good to see you. Wasn't that just beautiful? Let's give it up. Let's give it up. That was beautiful. Great job. Well, the sun is shining. I, some of you are wondering where that came from. I actually brought it with me, so you're welcome. It's beautiful out there. Now, uh, this is the last week of our three-week series, and uh, last week, for those of you who were here, you, you, you heard me talk a little bit about church signs. You know, we talked about how there are certain churches throughout America that have like a sign that they put out the front, and they put a, a, a clever, cute little message on them, you know? I'm not sure what happened, but maybe we inspired the facility team around here at Northridge. Did you guys see this when you were pulling in? Did you guys notice this? The sign was actually... uh, (laughs) It was adapted. Um, So in your best Australian accent, let's read this together. Here we go. On three. One, two, three. G'day, mate. Extra parking is out back. Fantastic. Let's thank our amazing team. Good stuff. Parking. I love hearing you say parking. This is fantastic. All right. Well, we are in week three of The Line. And just to catch you up, if you've not been with us, uh, we've been talking about the fact that sometimes Christianity can be reduced to what you believe and what you don't do. And what we have been rallying around in this series is that the teachings of Jesus were so much more about what you do than what you don't do. So instead of reducing, believing the right things and then spending all your time managing what you're against, we wanna talk about more about what you're for about what it means to actually put the kingdom of God on display like a, like a trailer, like a preview. And the text that we've been rallying around for the last three weeks is from Micah 6, uh, verse eight. It says this, he has, he has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So week one, we talked about acting justly. We defined justice as justice is making wrongs right. Last week, we talked about loving mercy, that as Christians, we shouldn't be showing mercy reluctantly or out of obligation, but that we should love to put the mercy of God on display, and that mercy is love in action, and when we do that, it is like putting a preview of the kingdom of God out there. And that the people should look at the church, the action, the love in action of the church, and they will either go not interested or that looks amazing and be drawn in to the work of the kingdom of God. This week, we're looking at this phrase, walk humbly with your God. Now, humility is often defined as a modest view of one's own importance, C.S. Lewis famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So rather than just teaching about humility today, I wanna look at how these three themes are woven together. These are not three disconnected autonomous ideas. In fact, in this verse, 
in Micah 6, they build on one another. There are three themes that actually build. They're interconnected. Acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly, they are connected with one another. So as we try to wrestle with what these ideas mean to us, I want to talk about humility. I want to talk about privilege. And I want to talk about these things in the light of acting justly and loving mercy. Because I believe that Micah 6 is helping us define what it means to walk humbly with your God. It is actually acting justly and it is loving mercy. So if you brought a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Mark 10, or that is Mark 10. (laughs) And would you stand with me out of respect for the Word of God? I'm going to read this. In the first century, when the Scriptures were read, people would stand in honor of the Scriptures being read. So Mark 10, verse 17, as Jesus started out on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with human beings, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, this account of the rich young ruler appears in three of the Gospels. Now, what do we know about this bloke? Well, there are three descriptors, rich, young, ruler. I learned that in seminary, right? So what do we know about this bloke? Well, you know, he's, a, he's young, he's successful, he probably inherited his money, or maybe he inherited money to begin with, but he's an accomplished young man. He's, he's, he's done a lot at a young age. That's a certain kind of person, isn't it? You know that person who's got a lot of drive. They've already made their first several million by the time they're 30. Their career is taking off. They're a type A, up-and-comer kind of a personality. Watch this kid. He's already making a mark. And we know he's a ruler. He has authority over other people. People are looking to him for leadership and direction, maybe even for provision. Maybe he employs a bunch of people or he oversees a a great number of staff. At a young age, he already has great influence and great resources. Verse 17 says, he ran up to him, up to Jesus, and fell on his knees. Now, what you need to know about the first century, first century Jewish men, is that it was shameful to run. And the reason was that they had to lift up their garments to run so that they didn't trip over. And in doing so, they would expose their legs. And it was shameful in Jewish culture to expose one's legs. 
So this sheds a little bit of insight onto the story of the prodigal son. You know where the father was like looking out, waiting for his son to return? And it says he ran towards him. So great was the passion of the father for the son that he embarrassed himself to grab hold of him. What a picture of the heart of God. So in this particular text, we see this rich, esteemed young ruler actually disgracing himself in front of a crowd just to get near Jesus. He's, he's so hungry for something. And it says that he fell on his knees. When you fell on your knees, you're placing yourself in a position of, of wanting to learn. It, it's a posture of learning. You're placing yourself beneath uh, the teacher. So he's at the feet of Jesus. So this guy was searching, and we have every reason to believe that he was discontent. This guy seemed to have it all. He was young, he was energetic, he was wealthy, he was influential. He probably had a personal trainer, and he worked out, and he looked great. He's probably like the Justin Bieber of our generation. Oh, forget that. Yet there was something that was missing, right? There was something that was missing, and we've seen this before. We've seen when someone achieves great success, they pursue wealth or power or money or fame, and then they manage to acquire them only to discover that they did not bring the kind of fulfillment that they hoped that they would. And one of the reoccurring messages of the Scriptures is that getting what you want does not quench the discontentment of the human soul. And this is true in this country, right? Americans live with, with such material wealth, yet there is a meaninglessness that permeates our culture. Tim Jackson, an econ economist, famously said this, we are being persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people we don't care about. Isn't that the truth? About 1,600 years ago, Augustine had a similar kind of perception. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Augustine is talking about the restlessness, the condition of the human heart. You feel that in yourself? This restlessness, restlessness to achieve or, or to be able to you know, acquire. There's, a, there's all of this sense of restlessness that we have inside of us. And this rich young ruler was restless. Verse 18 says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, this guy declares, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looks at him and loves him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Up to this point, the rich young ruler had been keeping the law, but it didn't cost him anything. And we talked about this last week. We even saw a beautiful depiction earlier in the service of the alabaster jar and the, the amount of cost that it would require to be, to be breaking out that alabaster jar. The, the cost here was, was significant. And, and, and this particular rich young ruler, he did not want to adjust his lifestyle. He wanted to give to the poor and serve other people out of his excess. 
And that's the tension, isn't it? It's the tension of our lives. It's the tension in my heart. I want to give everything to God. I just don't really want to sacrifice. And often, we treat our relationship with God like a cell phone contract. You know, when you're negotiating for a new cell phone contract, I mean, you're trying to get as many minutes as possible and the best data plan and rollover minutes and share it with your family and free mobile to mobile and all of that. You want to get as much as possible and you want your monthly payment to be as small as possible. You know, you want as much as you possibly can get and give as little as you possibly can give. It's called a bargain. We love bargains in this culture. And if we're not really careful, we sort of take the same mindset and we bring it over into our relationship with God. We want to give as little as possible. We want to get back as much as possible. And that is what this rich young ruler wanted to do. And we know that because in verse 22, it says that at this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. He was not prepared to give up what he had. Now, the issue here is privilege. So I really want to be talking about humility in the light of of privilege. It's safe to assume that this rich young ruler was born into privilege and and a healthy economic reality. This guy had some money. Now, there are two economic terms in this particular text. Did you notice them? There is rich and poor. Now, it's very easy for us to think that, well, I don't fit into either of these categories. I am not outrageously rich, and I am not tremendously poor. I am just kind of the middle class in this story. So this story is not really speaking to me. So just for some perspective, I want to talk about privilege for a moment. I once heard Andy Crouch give a talk covering the basic economic principles of privilege. Talked about four basic principles. I want to I share them with you because they... It sheds a little bit of light into what we're talking about here. Now, the first one is the idea of a wage. You know what a wage is, right? When I was 14 years old, I got my first job working at a grocery store, and uh, I was one that went and collected all of the the shopping carts and, and, and brought them back. We call them trolleys in Australia, and I was the trolley boy, right? And I was astounded that people, I don't know, like if they found a parking space a mile and a half away, but I would find shopping carts like miles away and I'd be the guy fetching them and bringing them back, right? And then I'd, you know, neatly put them back in the bays and all of that sort of stuff. To this very day, it doesn't matter if I'm carrying all three of my daughters and there's a blizzard outside, I will still return my shopping cart back to the bay. You know why? Because they are my people, and I take care of my people. So this week, when you're at a grocery store and you are tempted just to leave the shopping cart like just next to your car as you pull away, may my words echo and haunt you. All right, so I was, I, was, I got my first job, I was making about four bucks an hour, right? And I, I think I, I was still in high school and I, I, I got like $14, I got it like four, uh, 14 hours that week. I remember getting my first paycheck and I was opening it up going, what am I going to do with all of this money? You know, but we know about a wage. Like you, you do an hour's worth of work and you get an hour's worth of pay. 
But there is something better than a wage. It's called rent. Now, I am not talking about the principle of leasing a house, not that kind of rent. The economic principle of rent is the idea of getting paid more for something that you would be willing to do for less. So let's take, say, LeBron James, for example. Right? So when LeBron was in middle school, he was probably six foot six at the time, and he was already dunking, and all the other kids, you know, looked like that they hadn't hit puberty yet or something. And and one day, like a a talent scout is walking through the park and they see LeBron and they're like, how old are you? And he says, 13. And uh, they're like, you're large. And he says, yes, I am. And, uh, and they say, I- I've got an idea for you, uh, young LeBron. Um, if you were going to get paid to play basketball for the rest of your life, how much would you like to get paid per game? And little LeBron looks off into the distance for a while and he thinks, hmm, I would like to make every time I played on on the basketball court. Well, today, with his uh, paycheck from the Miami Heat and a few endorsements from Nike and from Sprite, little LeBron makes $646,000 a game. So, if little LeBron wanted wanted to play and make six grand, and he now makes 646 grand, then the, six, the difference, $640,000 is called rent. Rent is the idea of getting paid more for something you'd be willing to do for less. Incidentally, when David Beckham was playing soccer, he got $1.4 million a game. Not bad cash at all. All right, so a wage is getting paid for an hour's worth of work, an hour's worth of pay. Rent is getting paid more for something you'd be willing to do less. But there is something better than rent. It is called royalties. Now, I live in Nashville, as many of you know, and uh, half of my church works in the music industry. So they're either artists, songwriters, or waiters, we call them, um, <laughs> or, uh, or, or, or there, are, there are booking agents, or people who work for record labels, or, or, or whatever, right? But there are all of these people that are either working in the music industry, or they're trying to work in the music industry. I had a friend who was, who was extremely poor. He lived on other people's sofas. And about eight years ago, he wrote a song that became the most played radio song on pop radio, on hit radio in all of the United States. Uh, a year later, it got recorded by a different country artist. And the same song became the most played radio song on country radio. Eight, eight years ago or so, Needless to say, he no longer sleeps on other people's couches. Uh, He made an outrageous amount of money, and every year he makes more money from that song than everything else that he does. He gets a big check every year from one song. Royalties are great. You do something once, and you keep getting paid. So a wage, you do an hour's worth of work, get an hour's worth of pay. Rent, you get paid more for what you'd be willing to do less. Royalties, you do something once, and you keep getting paid over and over again. But there is something better than royalties. It is called privilege. And privilege is getting paid for doing nothing. It's getting paid for just who you are. Think of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's kids. They get paid for doing what? 
being born. Think about pro-athletes, kids. This is sometimes called the Paris Hilton effect. Privilege is receiving preferential treatment, favors, advantages, or money for something that you have not done, something you didn't earn. It may be the way you look, it may be the color of your skin, it may be the family that you were born into, or even the place of your birth. So a couple of years ago, I became a citizen of the United States, right? I now have an Australian passport, and I have an American passport. I am Jason Bourne. Yeah. (laughs) Feels pretty awesome, I'm not going to lie. So before I became a US citizen, which by the way, I cannot be deported now, so I don't care what you say, I'm one of you, okay? So anyway, before I I became a US citizen, uh, I had to keep extending my work visa, and then you get a green card, and then you get to become a citizen. So when I was having to extend my visa over and over again, I would have to uh, drive over to Memphis at the time, and I would stand in line with a bunch of other immigrants to get my visa extended. Now, you can't make an appointment. The only way you can do it is that you have to drive there and you have to stand in line for uh, hours, right? So the the INS would open at 9 o'clock in the morning and uh, people would start lining up at 6 a.m., three hours before it opened, so that they could get in as soon as possible. So I'm thinking to myself, hmm, I'm going to do better than these people. It's like lining up for a new iPhone, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to get there at, at, at 5 a.m., an hour early, and, uh, and I'll be at the front of the line. So I show up at 5 a.m., and there is already about 200 other hopeful immigrants that are standing in line. I'm like, no. So I, I park my car, I, I, I get in line, and I'm standing there, and I stand there and, and just chat for the next four hours with, uh, with other people that are, that are lining up at the INS. And there's people from... From every nation, it's, it's really like the United Nations standing there. It's, uh, there's people from the Middle East and people from Mexico and people from Africa and people from Asia. And we're just having all these conversations about how long you've been in the US and uh, you know, do you have family here and all that sort of stuff. It's great. So four hours later, the INS opens and the officer comes out and I'm standing there. I'm like 190th in line. And uh, the, the INS officer is walking all the way along, and he's looking at everyone, and then he points to me. And I'm like, me? He's like, yeah. He's like, come with me. I'm like, great, I'm getting deported. You know, I, I can't believe this. So I walk all the way to the front of the line, and then we go into another door, and then I sit down, I hand him my passport, and he looks over it. He writes down a couple of things, asks me a couple of questions, stamps it, and then hands it to me and says, okay, your visa's been extended, Thank you very much. I'm like, really? What about, uh, don't worry about that, you know. So I, so I walk out, and I'm kind of honestly avoiding eye contact with everyone else that's standing in the line. And I was thinking, I get pulled out of the line because of privilege. Maybe this guy liked Australians, or I spoke English well, or the way that I looked, or something. But something made him believe that this was going to be a fairly easy transaction, and so that he would pull me out of the line, I didn't have to wait, and then I was able to leave. And the sad thing that I'll never forget is that all these people are standing in line, and none of them seem surprised. And it made me wonder, 
How many times have I been put to the front of the line and I didn't even know there was a line? How much privilege do we enjoy that we are not even aware of? Privilege is the way that the world works. Now, most of us know this, but rarely do we stop to actually think about that we are some of the most privileged people that have ever lived. Have you ever been to the website globalrichlist.com? If you haven't been there, you need to check out this website, right? It's, it's just a really simple site. It has a little window, and what you do is you write in your annual salary. You just enter your annual salary, and it will rank you with how you fit with the rest of the world. And, and after you put your salary in, it'll give, it, it makes this really cool little graph, and, uh, and, and it shows you, like, percentage-wise, where you fit. Now, before too many of you start getting excited about filling that out and then taking it to your boss and asking for a raise, let me tell you that if you make more than $32,000 a year, you are in the top 1% richest people in the world. So I'm like putting this in, right? And I look at $32,000 a year, there are 99 people behind me. And I'm at the front of the line. Globalrichlist.com. Some experts say to completely solve global hunger would take about $30 billion a year. Americans spend more than that each year on ice cream. You see, our perspective is distorted by focusing on people who have more. Advertising is continually reminding us what we don't have and what we desperately need. But compared to the rest of the world, we are living in a time and a, and, and a time in history and in a country of unprecedented privilege. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think that the answer lies in the movement and the, and the actions of the other rich young ruler in this story. The other rich young ruler is 33 years old. Jesus, we know that because Jesus is just about to be executed in the, in the timeline in the gospel here. Jesus is 33. His riches are unparalleled and there is nothing that he doesn't rule. Think about this. Maybe the story should be called the meeting of the two rich young rulers. Maybe they were even close to the same age. The other rich young ruler what did Jesus do with his privilege? Philippians 2 verse 5 says, In your relationship with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself. There's that word by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up his lifestyle, he gave up his privilege for other people and it actually cost him something. Last week we talked about to, to share a burden, you must bear a burden. Jesus made the burden of other people his burden. He had to sacrifice, it cost him. He shared it, he carried it, he paid for it. And this young man walked away sad because he did not want to give away his privilege. 
and he missed out on the very reason why God gave him wealth and privilege to begin with. God gave him the wealth and God gave him the privilege to experience the joy of giving it away. I was with a doctor just a couple of weeks ago. Very uh, impressive, accomplished physician. Works at a at a, a well-known hospital, very respected hospital. He makes a lot of money and he does really well. One day he finds out that his neighbor, just, just next to him in his neighborhood, uh, was about to have his home foreclosed on. He didn't even know that his neighbor had lost his job and, uh, and they were right at the end of sort of the foreclosure, for, foreclosure proceedings and his house was about to be taken by the bank. And he finds this out on the same day that he finds out that at his hospital, they were offering him one extra shift a month if he wanted it. Now, this one extra shift, because he was getting like time and a half or double time or triple time or something, he was making some ungodly amount of money per hour if he did this shift. So he added it up and he realized that it was pretty close to what he would perceive the mortgage to be of his neighbor. So he decided that he would take this extra shift and then he went to his neighbor and said, until you find another job, you know I'm a Christian and I just feel cold to do this, we are gonna pay your mortgage until you find a job. Now he would say that no matter how exhausted he is in a month, no matter how, how tired he is, when he's doing that extra shift, he is filled with this tremendous sense of meaning and joy that he's actually an agent of the kingdom of God, that he is actually being a part of seeing the kingdom of God come. He is leveraging his privilege for someone that doesn't have it. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been around church for, for very long, you've probably heard an explanation of this particular text here. Maybe you've done a Bible study. And what you have learned is that the eye of a needle was also a, a very small opening, a very small gate uh, that was on the side of a city. And that uh, if, if someone was coming into a city late at night and it was all closed up, then there was this side gate called the eye of a needle and that they would have to take a camel and they would have to take off all of the different you know, bags and, and, and stuff that was loaded on. The camel would have to get down on its knees. They would have to push the head down and then two guys would have to push the sides of the camel in and push and push and push until the camel would come through on the other side, Right? And then the idea is to, to get the camel pushed through the eye of a needle is very, very difficult. I just want you to know that the amount of historical scholarly evidence of that idea is zero. There is zero evidence anywhere that there was ever an, a, a gate that was called the eye of a needle. That is just not true, right? Now, the other one that is out there is that the Greek word for camel is kamelos, is very close to the Greek word for, for twine or for rope, which is kamelos. It's actually just one different letter. And, and this idea is that a Greek uh, translator one day, translating into English, was busy like writing, 
And then like his wife was calling him for dinner and he's like, wait, I'm almost done with Mark 10, hang on. And he's writing, he's like, all right, I have a needle, all right. He meant to put rope, but he accidentally put camel in there. Oops. So, you know, like it makes sense that like, you know, it's, it's difficult for, for rope to go through the eye of a needle. It can be done, but it's difficult. Oops, I accidentally put camel in there. Scholars agree, historians agree that the text in every, every part of its original sense is that Jesus meant a camel, as in a hump camel, right? And then he also meant a needle, a needle. This is, the, this is a, a technique of exaggeration or hyperbole. Jesus is talking about a camel going through the eye of a needle. One commentator says that we have a modern phrase that would help us understand the same thing as this. It is this. The rich entering the kingdom of God have a snowball's chance in hell. There's a snowball's chance in hell of the rich entering the kingdom of God. What? Now we are in the tension of the text. Now we are feeling what the audience was feeling when Jesus was talking about this. Now we know why. In verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with human beings, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Who can be saved? None of us. Without God, none of us can be saved. But all things are possible with God. Without God, all things are lost. It is only through the work of Jesus that any of us can enter the kingdom of God. We have a snowball's chance in hell of entering the kingdom of God without the work of Jesus. But with God, all things are possible. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this text? When Jesus met with Zacchaeus, he only had to sell half of everything he had and give to the poor. Now Jesus is saying, sell it all. I want like the Zacchaeus one, that's 50% off sale. You know, like that one's a, that's like what's with the inconsistency here? What do we do with this? 1 John 3 verse 17 says, if any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. So how do we live this out? Well, I believe the key to all of this is in the last line of the text that we have been studying for the last three weeks. In Micah 6, verse eight, it says to walk humbly with your God. So I wanna close by telling you about a time that I was in Chicago at O'Hare. And uh, we, my wife, Brandy and I were delayed at, at, in, at O'Hare, which happens every single time that you go through O'Hare. So we, we had like a three hour delay. Our flight had some sort of problem. And, uh, and so we decided that we were gonna go and eat at Chili's 
in, in O'Hare. If you've ever eaten there, <clears throat> you will remember that uh, because it's in a terminal of an airport, like the, the tables are so awkwardly close to other people, you feel like you're sitting in the lap of some stranger when you're having a burger, right? So Brandy and I go into Chili's and we sit down and uh, as, as we like, you know, we order and that kind of stuff. And then this senior adult, this, this sweet lady that was probably older than my grandparents, she comes on in all by herself and she sits down at the table next to us. And Brandy says to me, did you see that lady that just walked in? I'm like, the one right there? She's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I saw her. She goes, I just have this sense that we're supposed to buy her lunch. I'm like, really? What do you, what do you mean? She's like, no, no, no. Like, I feel like, I feel like God is saying we need to buy her lunch. I'm like, okay. Well, tell her. She goes, no, you tell her. I said, sweetheart, God told you, so you tell her. She said, yeah, but I think God told me to tell you to tell her. And I said, nah, I, I think this is all you. This is all yours, you know? And so she's like, all right, I'm gonna do it. <clears throat> Please, will you tell her? I'm like, you, you can do this. You ever been in that moment where you feel like you, you're supposed to do something and you know that it could get a little spooky around here, you know? And you're about to do it, and you're like, nah, you know, I'm about to do something that's gonna be kind of weird and, and all of that, but uh, and you're right on the edge of, I'm going to, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do it, no, I'm serious, I'm serious, I'm gonna, no, 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 I'm not going to. You ever been in that moment? So, so Brandy's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it, I'm serious. No, 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 I'm actually serious, I'm gonna do it. So then she waits, right, and Right at the, like, sort of the end of our meal, we all finish our meals, and the waiter comes and puts our checks down on our table at the same time. And I said, honey, if you're gonna do it, you gotta do it right now. So she leans over to the table, and she grabs the receipt and goes, I'll take that, thanks! I'm thinking, I guess that's how God wanted you to do it, you know? This lady's kind of shocked. She's like, excuse me, you know? And she goes, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. We'd just like to buy you lunch. And she says, Really? She said, yeah. So she kind of turns her chair around a little bit and she looks at us and she goes, thank you. She said, you know, I've never been married and I've spent my life traveling around to different countries, predominantly third world countries, because I'm a Christian missionary. Do you know what that is? Like, yeah, kind of a little idea, you know? And she said, God always takes care of me. So thank you. You know what I was thinking? Wish I'd said, I'd like to buy your lunch. <laughs> but I didn't. And I just wondered like whether for just a split second, just a moment, the curtains of the kingdom of God were peeled back and we got to just peer in. Maybe God is like looking at his precious daughter that served him for decades. And she walks into Chili's at O'Hare. And then God is looking across Chili's to find another one of his kids to take care of his precious little girl. And he's looking for an open ear. He's looking for someone that's gonna respond to him. 
Maybe he tried to tell me, but I was way too into my burger, like pasta ketchup, you know, like I, I was, I wasn't listening, but my wife, she just had this sense that she was supposed to buy this lady's lunch, and I just wonder, I just wonder whether that is what it looks like to walk humbly with your God. It's not just walk humbly. It's not just humility. It's walk humbly with your God. That maybe we are supposed to do acts of justice, we are supposed to love mercy, put mercy on display by being led by God, by working, by walking humbly with God. Maybe that is what all of this is about. And maybe this next week, as we are kind of dispatched back into our work and our schools and our neighborhoods, maybe we would go with a, with a sense of trying to listen because we want to walk humbly with God. Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Maybe some of you would say today, well, I have never walked with God before. Well, today you could make a decision to open your heart to the mercy and the love of God. And you could invite him in, give him uh, lordship of your life, give him control of your life. Surrender yourself to him. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. You might be at the very beginning or you may even find yourself in a place today where you're going, I just need to be surrendering my heart again to be walking humbly with God. I, I wanna invite you to do that. So let's stand together and we're gonna close in prayer. And then after that, we're gonna sing a song. We're actually gonna sing Micah 6, 8, a song that is based on, on those words, the words of scripture, and may it be an anthem for us. Let's pray. God, I pray, first of all, for those that are like on the, on the brink of making this decision of inviting the mercy and the love of God, your love into their lives. And I pray, God, that you would give them the courage to do that, the conviction that they would feel that they're being called and and, and led by you, that they would just surrender their hearts to you. Thank you for the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus on the cross. You made a way for us to be reconciled to you. And I pray that people would be turning their lives over to you today. And for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a little longer, God, I pray that we would in increasing measures be surrendering ourselves to you again. I pray that you would find us acting with justice, that we would be agents of justice, that we would be wanting to bring justice. I pray that you would find us putting mercy on display. And I pray, God, that you would find us with ears open to you, walking humbly with you, guiding us and, and leading us. I pray that you would find us ready to do that, that we would put uh, the kingdom of God on display, that people would look on and say, that looks beautiful. So that's our prayer, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. On the way in, you received a program that looks like this, and if you made a decision today to give your life to Jesus, then I would encourage you just to fill out the top part and then check the box at the bottom here and you can hand that in uh, to one of the ushers or you can put it in uh, one of the boxes and um, 
we would want to celebrate with you and, and, and a, 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 someone from the, the Northridge team will follow up with you this week. Uh, it has been a tremendous joy to be with you these last three weeks and uh, as we sing this final song and we close out this series, The Line, may we live above the line acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. May it be true. Amen.